Hey everybody, this is Vesna Luca and you are listening to Summa and Friends, the show for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. On the show today, Raj Sisodia, professor of conscious enterprise and co-founder and global leader of conscious capitalism, and Rainer Indal, founder and managing partner of Summa Equity. And today we'll talk about conscious capitalism, a new way of doing business. So Raj, let's start by unpacking conscious capitalism. What is it and who is it for? Well, yeah, thank you for hosting me, uh, Vesna, and great to be with you, Andranir. Conscious capitalism is, uh, is a philosophy of business, a uh, different way of life, I would say. It's also a movement. But I'd also call it an evolutionary imperative that we have been thinking about business and capitalism in a certain way for quite a long time. And that is pretty narrow in terms of the purpose of business, in terms of the impact that we seek to make in the world. It has purely been focused on the financial side, right, and, uh, on making money and, of course, products and services and employment. But beyond that, there are a lot of consequences of how we operate. So conscious capitalism as a movement started in 2008, and it has four pillars or tenets, as we call them, that define the why, what, who, and how of business differently than the traditional answer. So the why has always been about profits and shareholder value. And we say, no, there needs to be a higher purpose beyond profit. Profits are essential and necessary, but that's not the reason for the company to exist. The company is trying to do something impactful and meaningful and solve some challenges that we face. Right? So there's a higher purpose. Secondly, it's about stakeholder integration, not just about shareholder value creation. So it's about simultaneously creating value for employees, for their families, for customers, communities, suppliers, the environment, uh, society as a whole. The third pillar is conscious leadership. In order to achieve those two things, purposeful value creation for all stakeholders, you need leaders who are focused on people and the purpose. And it's not just about power and money and, you know, sort of uh, self-realization. It's really self-transcendence in a way, impacting other people through your leadership, taking people to a better place. And then the last is culture, where we talk about a uh, trusting and caring culture, where most companies have cultures that are rooted in, in performance. And we still need that, of course, but we also need to have cultures where people can feel valued and inspired because the reality is in most companies, that's not the case. Most people are stressed out by the uh, cultures that prevail. So those are the four pillars of conscious capitalism. And when they work together in a synergistic way, because you know you can adopt any one of those and make a difference. But if you adopt all of them, then they all reinforce each other, right? The purpose aligns with all of the different stakeholders who care about those uh, that purpose. The leaders are driven by that. The culture reflects the values uh, that go with that purpose. Uh, when you do all of these things together, it really creates a very powerful engine of, uh, of value creation. In our research, uh, in my book, Firms of Endearment, we found that these companies that fit this mold over the long run dramatically outperform the market. It was a nine to one ratio in my original research of uh, 18 public and 10 private companies. Uh, then we did a second edition with uh, about 72 companies, much more data driven. And we still found a dramatic outperformance about 7.7 times over a 20-year period for these companies compared to the market. So, so these companies create a lot more financial wealth, but they don't do that at the expense of other forms of well-being. In fact, they have a positive impact in multiple areas, uh, e emotional, spiritual, ecological, physical, societal, cultural value creation. All of those are positive impacts where traditional businesses might see those as externalities and, and therefore usually negative consequences while they are seeking to uh, to generate profits. So why is it that these companies outperform? Initially, I have to say, we were also surprised, you know, that these companies are performing well, so well for uh, for shareholders, even though they're not trying to maximize profit, right? They are actually trying to impact, you know, or bring their purpose into reality in the world and treat all of their stakeholders as, as important contributors uh, to the business. What we find is that when we do that, a number of things happen. First of all, your employee engagement goes dramatically higher. Now, that's a huge, huge impact because if you look at 
Gallup's data on employee engagement worldwide, I think the number is below 20%, right? And the U.S. is about 35%, which is actually one of the highest. But still, if you think about that, two-thirds of people are not really that passionate about their work. In these companies, you find the level of engagement is well into the 90s in many cases. So people are not just engaged, they are passionate, they are committed, they are therefore a lot more creative and innovative and collaborative. And that just makes all the difference because ultimately every business runs on human energy and it's the creative and the caring aspects of human energy. So that's a huge difference. The second is, uh, and this is actually how my project started, these companies spend a lot less money on marketing. They get the benefit of delighted customers who uh, you know, generate word of mouth. And all stakeholders actually, in a way, become marketers on your behalf when you have a company like this, which is rooted in, in, in a higher purpose and has these core values that are shared across all stakeholders. Everybody contributes to the flourishing of, of these companies. So marketing spend in, in many of these companies is 90%, sometimes even 95% below the industry average. So you're saving in in uh, in, in a multiple areas. Marketing also employee turnover. So engagement is high, but annual turnover is much lower. So people come to these companies and they stay, right? So just as a comparison, Costco and Walmart are competitors, but Walmart's annual employee turnover, when we looked at it, was seventy percent. Costco was seven percent, right? So Walmart had to replace two million people every year just to replace those who left voluntarily. Costco people join and they never leave and they become more effective, more productive, more collaborative, et cetera, over time. So you've got that huge piece on the employee and the customer side, right? You also have more trust in these environments. So legal costs are lower. You also have greater autonomy. Uh, People are self-organizing, self-managing and self-motivating. So you don't have a lot of layers of management. You don't need to have people's in a way, supervising others because people are all aligned and they know what to do and they know how to do it, right? So you save. So I think what the difference is in these companies, you spend money where it makes a difference. So you pay your people well, provide them good working conditions, good benefits, the same thing with your suppliers. You invest in the customer experience, right? But then you save money in ads and coupons and marketing generally, right? And employee turnover and all the other stuff, right? The friction, of business, which results in a lot of wasted spending, there's a lot much less friction in these systems. So, so those are some of the factors. You know, it's interesting that when you look at their income statements, on average, you will find that their gross margins might be less compared to their industry averages. Why? Because they're paying the people better and they're paying their suppliers better, right? And therefore, gross margins might be less, but their net margins are often higher. Why? Because they're spending less on GS and A. They're spending less, as I said, on marketing. They're spending less on layers of management. They're spending much less on employee turnover, employee uh, recruitment, training. All of those things are less needed, right? So that's how it ends up with a, uh, as an engine of value creation, much stronger than what you find in a traditional business. Fascinating. But Raj, to connect this work of yours with your purpose, how would you express your purpose? Yeah, so my purpose has evolved over time, but basically I landed on it at the time I was writing my book, Firms of Endearment, which is companies loved by everybody. And that's how we found these four pillars. You know, I was writing some of the stories of of these companies and what they did for employees, for the families of employees, communities, etc. And I found myself moved to tears. I literally experienced tears of joy for the first time ever connected to my work. And I said, wow, there's such deep humanity that can exist inside business. And then later on, we did the financial results. And, you know, we found that this does not come at a penalty that, you know, you can either be a nice company or you can be a successful company that actually these things go together. You can be a kind company where people are cared for and you're dramatically more, you're stronger, you know, in terms of the marketplace. So my purpose over time has evolved, as I said, but today I would express it as bringing heart, healing, soul, and courage to business and leadership so that we can build a better world that works for all. And I chose those words very carefully. So it's about bringing heart, right? If you think about business, it's mostly about the head and the wallet. We kind of left the human side, emotions, and, you know, the social side of human beings, mostly out of how we think about economics and business, right? It's all about dispassionate thinking and making decisions to maximize what's in the wallet. But we leave out the human being that's in between. We leave out the heart, the soul, what makes us really 
who we are, right? And what is the real source of our power as human beings. So it's about bringing heart and this idea of healing. You know, I think one of the realizations that I've had is that the way we traditionally do business such has made a huge impact, obviously, in the world. We've created extraordinary technologies and uh, we've elevated living standards and we've done lots of things. But at the same time, we have added to the stress and the psychic suffering and the planetary consequences of how we operate in terms of the environment have all been quite dire. And so I believe there's a lot of unnecessary suffering in the world because of the way in which we run our businesses, the way we lead, manage, and organize. And I don't think that's necessary. I don't think if a business has to cause suffering. I mean, the data are quite clear. Heart attacks are 20% higher on Mondays. You know, 120,000 Americans die due to stress connected to work. 600,000 Chinese die because of overwork. You know, those are some of the human costs, but it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, they can be a, a, a range of uh, human benefits where we can be physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and socially stronger and healthier as a result of our work and as opposed to the other way around. So the idea of healing, business as healing, it's not about healing businesses, about business itself as a healing activity. When we meet people's needs, when we care for them, that's healing. Right? So heart, healing, soul, and courage to business and leadership. Beautiful. But Raj, you're not... Thank God alone in your dedication to make the world of business a better place. There are many companies, as you mentioned, out there also fueled by this passion and purpose, and they are outperforming the competition and they are helping all stakeholders thrive and, and they are also resilient in downturns. So there's no trade-off, but still these companies are not the norm. So in fact, they're incredibly uh, rare still. So the question is then, if there is such an alignment between purpose and stakeholder thinking and profits, why then so much greenwashing and slow change around us? It's very difficult to uh, bring about a paradigm shift in people's minds. When you have been educated in business school and when you've seen uh, how business is done at most companies, right, and what is the uh, mental model of how a business operates, it's very difficult for people to let go of that, right? And that's essentially what we're asking them because the traditional mental model is very simple. It's or simplistic. Even profit equals revenue minus cost and maximize profit means maximize revenue, minimize cost and all the things that follow from that. And we're saying something quite different. So this is kind of a leap of consciousness. It's kind of a leap of faith as well to some degree where people don't realize that actually when you pay your people well and you give them good benefits, right, and, and predictable work schedules and, and all of that, that that actually has a positive impact on your ability to be competitive as opposed to saying, oh, we're paying our employees more and therefore profits automatically go down. Actually, tons of evidence that that's not the case. It in fact goes the other way. So again, unlearning what we have already learned is I think one of the big challenges. There's a deeply ingrained mindset. We've got theories and frameworks that all of us have imbibed you know, in our business educations and otherwise the whole paradigm of economics, you know, based upon this idea of homo economicus, that this is how human beings behave and this is what motivates them. It's a very, very narrow understanding of that and it's actually not accurate. It doesn't reflect what human beings really are, but but it kind of becomes self-fulfilling, you know, and we treat people as though they're individualistic and they're selfish and they're materialistic. Well, you know, then people start acting that way when we start celebrating greed as the foundation for the success of capitalism and say greed is good. Well, no, it's not. You know, greed is not never a virtue, but somehow we have created that, that mindset. So, so ultimately it's about the consciousness of the leader to be able to see how things are interconnected and interdependent and to be able to view the business as this living organism and not as this simple input output machine and say our responsibility is to the flourishing of the whole of this organism. And the whole of the organism, therefore, includes its customers, its employees, their families, you know, all of the stakeholders, right? And that is a shift that is very hard for many people to make. You know, they're not there in consciousness. And the fact is that we have a system, an economic system, where we have selected people based upon certain criteria, right? People have become managers and have become leaders and have become CEOs because of their ability to deliver numbers. But we haven't looked into how they have done that, right? And, and very often, you know, it's, it's a result of uh, people who are quite ruthless and even uh, sociopathic. You know, the disturbing research that shows the level of sociopathic behavior or tendency if you do a psychological profile 
is, is about 1% in the general population, but it's about 20% in high security prisons. And it's also 20% in, in leadership, in executive roles in corporations, right? So that's just a function of how we have operated in the past, right? And we haven't looked at the human consequences or the future consequences or the planetary consequences of the way in which people have gone around, uh, gone about delivering the numbers. So I think those are some of the shifts. People who are in leadership roles, who are on boards, who have a narrow view of what business is about, who have a personal priority around power and, and money, and they're doing very well under the existing system, right? In the last 40, 50 years, you know, we've seen that people at the top have done very well, but it has not created widespread flourishing. And if you don't care about that, then you're not going to adopt these principles because under this current way of doing things, a lot of people have done very well. So those are some of the factors, I think, that are that are keeping people stuck in a way or keeping our you know, society stuck, right? That we have to kind of get out of this in order to be able to get to a, a different paradigm. And how do you get out of this first? You know, it has its own gravitational pull, the existing. There's a system that reinforces that way of being. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think we are in a paradigm shift and and we have to unlearn that greed is good before we go on to a new paradigm, which is probably to serve is good, uh, I would guess. You know, I have been optimistic and a bit surprised over the last three, four years because I felt suddenly the paradigm shift was going very quickly. So Larry Flink of BlackRock mm-hmm. was out there talking about stakeholder capitalism and purpose. And then you have Tarek Fancy, who was heading up sustainability in BlackRock, leaving disgruntled last year. You've uh, had now with the Ukraine war, oil and gas prices up, and suddenly now oil is the new gold uh, again, which I thought you know we had moved on from just a year ago. I've been surprised that the paradigm shift was happening and happening so fast and that we were unlearning. And then I'm surprised again that suddenly that was not the case. I do believe that we have been approaching a tipping point in 2019, just before the pandemic was kind of a tipping point year. As you mentioned, BlackRock and Larry Fink had been doing that for a number of years, but that was also the year of the business roundtable in the U.S. issuing its revised statement on the purpose of business and Davos issuing their stakeholder capitalism manifesto and so forth. So I think there's a lot of, you know, rethinking that has been underway for a number of years now. But now if you look at what's happened in the short run, of course, with oil prices and supply chains and food prices and inflation and so forth. You know, I think we have to be careful not to overreact to what are, I believe, short-term things that are going on. You know, as we say, don't mistake the headlines for the trend lines. And the headlines are all about these things. But this is a, an aberration, right? Just having a war in Europe is such an aberration today. If you think about it, until 1946, the European countries were constantly at war with each other. You know, there were 1,200 wars in 600 years between European countries. Since 1946, we had zero until this one, right? And this, much of the world united in opposition to this. So I do, I do think that, you know, this is a short-term phenomena. I think oil can go up, uh, you know, all the more it's going to make alternative energy more attractive places to invest, right? Yeah. So I think in the longer run, this will actually accelerate. This shows us how vulnerable we are to a few places in the world that, you know, that have this stuff, right? And they can blackmail us and hold us hostage. We need to move past that. And when we get to the renewable sources, those are pretty much available to people all over the world. So I do think that ultimately in the long run, you know, progress doesn't happen like this. It kind of happens like this and backs up and then again goes to the next year. And, you know, we've had a lot of change in the last 30 years. 1989 was a turning point in human history, I believe, with the collapse of communism, the Berlin Wall, the invention of the World Wide Web, and many other things that happened starting around that time. We entered a new phase of our history. But I think currently what we're looking at is kind of the backlash. When there's so much change that happens in a, in a short period of time, the established order often reasserts itself. You know, it's kind of the empire strikes back, you know, in that Star Wars scenario. You know, but that's a usually a short-lived thing. Ultimately, you cannot deny progress and you cannot deny the trajectory that we are on longer run and have to be on. It's a survival issue. You know, we know yeah. we cannot rely on fossil fuels forever. I, mean, that's, uh, I agree. And, and so we can be hopeful then that the paradigm shift is not stopping up and 
is still happening and, and hopefully at a, at a good speed. If we're going to debunk greed is good and, and rather show to serve is good, do you have some good examples of, of, uh, of companies that are performing uh, conscious capitalism? Yeah, yeah, we have many, of course. As I said, I have 28 in Funds of Endearment, uh, 72 in the second edition. In the healing organization, I've got another 20 stories of companies that are that are doing these kinds of things. So there are many, ranging from very small companies to uh, global multinationals like Unilever, I think has been cited by many, rightly so, uh, ever since Paul Polman became CEO and it's continued under his successor. As a company that has truly embraced this you know, not as a peripheral activity, but as a core element of their strategy and their identity. So I think they are doing a lot of amazing things, not only in terms of the sustainability side, right, but also in terms of the future of work, in terms of giving all of their 160,000 employees the opportunity to discover their own purpose and live that purpose through their work, right? The commitment to a living wage, not only for themselves, but also all their suppliers, We'll have to provide a living wage in 180 countries uh, by 2030, and they're helping them get there. Right? So that's a great example. Uh, Patagonia, of course, as a smaller company, but a beautiful illustration. A Dutch bank, Triodos, which to me is one of the purest representations of, of conscious capitalism in the world of uh, finance. Uh, I think Microsoft has done amazing things. And Microsoft shows us the power of leadership to turn around an entrenched a culture. Right, that had existed under Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer. And then Satya Nadella comes around and he completely has transformed that company's culture and he has made them relevant again. Right, He gave them a renewed sense of purpose. They had an original purpose under Bill Gates of putting a computer on every desk. That was kind of realized. You know, what do you do when your purpose has been realized? You can lose a lot of energy and momentum. And they did. Under Steve Ballmer, they had no purpose. They were just about profit and numbers and they went nowhere. In his 14 years, basically, the company was flat you know, created no real incremental value at all and became mostly irrelevant. And then Nadella comes along and gives them a renewed sense of purpose, uh, creates a culture that was rooted in empathy and a growth mindset. And he modeled that himself, right? He created a different environment of uh, leadership, became very authentic and vulnerable with his uh, with his team and created a culture where everybody was was willing to do the same. And you now see Microsoft not only has created extraordinary, went from 300 billion to 2.5 trillion in market cap over his seven year, 10 years so far, but also is at the top of the rankings when you look at just capital, right? In terms of ESG elements, in terms of future of work, right? Every dimension that you can think about diversity, all of those Microsoft is really doing extraordinarily well on a dimension. So uh, there's a company called Fifco in, uh, in, Costa Rica that I've written about, great example. You know, it's about a one and a half billion dollar company. It's not huge, but the largest company in Costa Rica. And they've been on the full journey, right, from a traditional business all the way now to a deeply healing organization with all of the elements of purpose and stakeholders and so forth. Now, the Tatas in India have been a conscious company for a business group for 140 years, literally. I mean, they started in around 1880 or so. And all of their businesses are run with this mindset. You know, it used to be, what does India need? You know, it was kind of nation building. You know, at a time when India was still a British colony. Today, as a global company, you know, they think on an even broader campus. But what does society need? And society is our number one stakeholder, as they've always talked about. And that's why business exists, you know. So, so again, many, I was just at a company in Mexico called Farmacias Similares, which basically provides, it has a bigger impact on Mexican poor people than the government does in terms of healthcare, right? Because they run about 7,000 pharmacies that sell uh, only generic drugs at very, very affordable prices where the traditional pharmacies were charging much higher prices. And so this company operates with ex extremely low prices and they provide then a doctor, you know, a clinic next to the pharmacy where you can see a doctor for $2, and then you can get your prescription filled next door, you know, and they're reaching literally, as I said, you know, about 30, 40% of Mexico's population is dependent on them for their well-being. And so it just shows the power of business to heal, you know, in a broad way. Talking about leadership as a, you know, a key, a key instrument for this change that uh, we want to see, 
I've read a couple of your books and so on. Of course, they talk about also this beautiful balance between whatever is called masculine, typically masculine and feminine traits. And, and the traits of, of good leadership today are very much feminine traits like compassion and empathy and uh, to guide people, nurturing perspectives, you know, inclusiveness and, and, and patience and all of that. Do you think that we are at a turning point finally? Yeah, we are at a turning point and it's not replacing masculine with feminine, but it's now integrating, right? I think we have a tendency to be bipolar, right? We go from, you know, liberal to conservative and we go from masculine to feminine. No, it's not that. It's really these are polarities that need to be integrated. Now, it's true that we have operated for millennia in society with every institution being run by men mostly and with a set of masculine values, which the positive masculine values are beautiful. They're essential, like strength and courage and discipline and focus and uh, resilience and so forth. But in the absence of the feminine, that becomes domination and aggression and, you know, hyper-competition and winning at all costs and ruthless and, you know, disconnected from heart and emotion. So we need that combination. I do think we are a turning point because, as I said, throughout human history, the feminine has been relegated to the sidelines, has been suppressed. Women have been suppressed. I mean, the U.S., you know, was a free country in which women did not have the right to vote or own property for the first 120 years of its existence, 140 years almost for voting, right? And so we have not had the recognition of not only women, but also the feminine energy that exists in all of us. So all of us, as Carl Jung said, every man has an inner woman, every woman has an inner man. We have both sides, within us, right? The feminine energy, the masculine energy, the caring side, right? And the, uh, the sort of the, uh, the strength side of things. So we need to integrate those. And that's really, I think, what the opportunity is today. First of all, elevate and, and respect and recognize the feminine. I think that is the biggest story of this century. If you look at the uh, 19th century was the end of slavery and the 20th was the end of totalitarianism. For the most part, we still have a little bit. I think the 21st is the end of the sidelining of the feminine where the feminine wing of a feminine aspect of society can finally rise to its rightful role. The, the metaphor that is used as the bird of humanity has been flying for millennia with one wing tied behind its back. That's the feminine wing. It's only been the masculine wing that has been, you know, keeping the bird of humanity, at least in the world, afloat. But that, that, that has become overdeveloped and had become aggressive and violent almost, right? And you go around in circles when you just have one wing. But this is the century when we are able to unleash and un unfurl both the masculine and feminine, right? And that, that will allow us to soar higher and go faster and go further as a result of that. So I really believe it's a combination of, as Martin Luther King said, we must be tough-minded and tender-hearted. It's not either or. Right? And in the past, of course, our vision of a leader was General Patton, you know, decisive, focused, orders, you know, uh, ruthless, etc. And today, no, it's a whole human being. The leader is, a whole, in fact, we go in beyond the masculine feminine. Uh, we talk about being the wise fool of tough love. So you integrate not only the masculine and feminine, which is a tough love side, but the wisdom and the foolishness. You have to have the wisdom of the elder, of your divine self, understanding meaning and purpose and, and, and legacy and transcendent values. And then you also have to have the foolishness, the joy, the innocence, the playfulness, the humor of the child. Right? Too often as we grow older, we lose that. And if we're not connected to our healthy child energy, we cannot be creative. We cannot actually think outside the box, right? Because then we become very, very regimented. So we have to work on creating or being connected to the healthy versions of all four energies, elder, child, father, and mother energy, all of them, right? And when we do that, well, we can, each of us, become our own versions of a wise fool of tough love. Like if I look at the Dalai Lama, you know, I see the wisdom, right? I see the playfulness, the humor, right? I see his strength and I see the love. If I look at Herb Kelleher from Southwest Airlines as a CEO, very much embodied all of these things, right? It's relatively rare to find all of these in, in a person, but I think we can all cultivate that, you know? When I think about it, my normal tendency might be on wisdom and love, but maybe I don't do enough with the toughness and the foolishness, right? And so once I become aware of that, I can say, okay, I need to dial up the healthy masculine, the uh, boundaries, you know, and setting clear, you know, guidelines, you know, all of those elements. And I also need to be more playful, and also that awareness. And then as a leader, 
showing up with the right energy in a given situation. You don't always show up as tough or always as loving. You know, you can show up as, with wisdom or humor as the situation warrants. Right? That's what I would say we need today in leaders. How do you develop this new awareness in leaders out there that contributes to this human flourishing in a way? Yeah, well, that's, I think, the whole name of the game for us in the movement is really about developing leaders. You know, and if we can awaken leaders, mm. right, to their own sense of purpose, their own core values, right? Who are they? What do they stand for? What do they want to do with this life, etc.? And then connect that to their work. So you lead from a place of authenticity. You have to lead from a place of service. If you are a leader and you all, you're basically you are using other people to achieve your personal goals. You say, that's not a leader, that's a tyrant. A true leader is there to take people to a better place, right? So how do we awaken in people the uh, the desire to serve? Because we know that the deepest source of satisfaction and fulfillment for human beings is having a positive impact on the lives of others and in the world, right? Our default purpose as human beings, as Richard Leider puts it, is to give and to grow. Each of us, we figure out how do we give and how do we grow? How do we give as in well, how can we have an impact on other people, on the world, on society? And how do we grow into who we are, we are capable of being, right? Each of us has divine potential to, uh, to do extraordinary things, right? So how do we bring that into our work, right? So how do we lead for the right reasons, not from ego, right? But from a place of service. So servant leadership is a related concept to conscious leadership, which is very essential. Right? Because I think it's all, in a way, begins and ends with leadership. If you have leaders who are just about money and power and ego, and they're going to then create that environment and everybody else will become like a mini-me. You know, when Bill Gates was running Microsoft, everybody wanted to be Bill, right? And like Bill, right? And they behave like that. So so that is really the, uh, the, the challenge and the opportunity, awakening leaders and connecting them and making sure we select leaders with that lens, you know, very often companies select leaders, again, based on technical skills or based upon ability to deliver numbers and so forth, all of which are fine, but you have to look at this human side, their emotional intelligence, maturity, their spiritual intelligence, right, their systems intelligence, and most of importantly, their value system, you know, and others. As we say, power and virtue need to go together. And, and very often it doesn't in many organizations. The most powerful are not the ones who have the highest standards of virtues and ethics and the people who are the most virtuous typically do not seek out power they're not power hungry but power is essential so we have to empower the virtuous among us find them right and then and they're, they're the ones who will transform the company and society for the better if you're a leader grown up in the old paradigm can you switch to the new paradigm or have you been living the new paradigm in the old paradigm and hence suddenly flourishing now? And I think, you know, it would be good to get your perspective on it, but I do think it, it should be possible to shift. And I have personally been through a shift when I realized where the world world was heading. And, and, and for me, at least, what it was about was a change of philosophy. So you have to switch from, mm -hmm. you know, the I or, or your own career or whatever to the we and to serve uh, others. Mm -hmm. And the more and more you understand uh, how the path the world is on and how much we need everyone to serve, then suddenly, you know, that shift happens. So you have to go from the old uh, love thyself, which uh, or greed is good, that uh, capitalism yeah, has right. been based on, to love your neighbor as thyself in the old wisdom, right? So you have to serve as well. And that's a philosophy shift. And I do think, and that has to be in everything you do, not only about how to create an organization and how to live that caring, loving, right. uh, and creating that culture, but it's with your, all your stakeholders, it's externally, it's, it has to transform the whole business, both your products and services and what you do and your organization and how you live that and how you build the culture. And it's a philosophy shift that has to happen. And I, I think that that can happen. I don't know what uh, what you've seen. Yeah, no, it can happen. I think the great challenge is how to make it happen systematically and predictably because it's different for everybody. 
you know, I wrote a book with Bob Chapman and he, he was a conventional leader until he had these epiphanies or awakenings or he would say, I received a message from God, you know, that at a wedding or at a at church when there was a sermon and suddenly he interpreted that in a different way and he woke up or he was transformed in that instant, right? Or um, Ray Anderson at Interface Carpet who made these carpets that were based on petroleum, you know, nylon carpets, and it's a very, very polluting industry, both from production as well as at the end of the life cycle. But he had no consciousness about that until somebody asked him to give a speech on the on environmental issues, and he had no knowledge. And somebody said, okay, read this book, and this will help you, you know, make your speech. And the book was called The Ecology of Commerce by Paul Hawken. And just reading that book changed his life. He woke up transformed, per se. Oh, he said, oh, my God, I am a plunderer. What I'm doing, I'm stealing the future from my own children and grandchildren. He literally said, if there was any justice in the world, people like me should be in jail because what we're doing is, you know, is literally stealing the future, right? So again, that was a transformation for him. So how does this awakening happen? Uh, you know, I've just been writing a paper in which we have two elements that are essential in that. One is having a mentor or a guide or a teacher of some kind who you trust. Now, it can be in person or it could be through a book or through, you know, some other means, but somebody who elevates you, inspires you in, in a certain way. And the second is having a disequilibriating experience. That's something that takes you out of your comfort zone, out of your sense of equilibrium, right? Where you are suddenly put into, you know, a situation, you know, for example, you know, when people are taken to the slums of India or you know, the uh, favelas in, in South America, etc. When you bear witness to the suffering that's out there, because very often leaders can be insulated from that, right? Or they don't open their minds and heart. But when you really open up to that suffering that does exist, even within their own company, you can see it in society by going to a slum, or, you know, you can actually look at how is life for the pe- lowest paid people in my company, the front lines, you know, the part-time employee in the, in the store or who's driving the van or whatever. You know, if you realize how difficult life is for people who are within within your ecosystem, right? When there's so much suffering, you know, there's a show in in America uh, on TV called Undercover Boss. I don't know if they've had that in Europe, but the premise is very simple. They take CEOs and they put on a heavy disguise and they work in their own company at the bottom of the of the uh, pyramid, right? They work at the front line for a couple of weeks. And then they experience what life is like and, and they say, oh my God, this work is incredibly hard and these people are so dedicated and their lives are filled with challenge and they have very, very few resources. And if something happens out of the ordinary, their life can be ruined. You know, they get all these realizations and then at the end of those two weeks, you know, they have a big reveal, say, oh my God, it's the CEO. And then they, you know, they make a big show of writing a check for $25,000 to one of those employees because, you know, they have some illness in their family or their daughter, whatever. They help solve individual problems, but they don't change the system, right? The system that is creating that suffering. So I think that is a fundamental principle here. You have to bear witness to the suffering. And from that, loving action will naturally arise. And this is kind yeah. of a Buddhist spiritual principle. But this is what we see in these companies, you know, as being willing to open. Once you know, once you've seen that, you cannot unsee it. And that has to then inform your, your decision making. It's like taking the red pill in Matrix or was it the blue pill? I can't remember. But uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Being willing to see reality as it is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Raj, you mentioned a healing organization uh, and, and, and that was intriguing. So could you explain a little bit more around that? Yeah. So first of all, the recognition that most companies are not healing organizations, they're in some way hurting organizations because the level of stress that they create internally is extraordinary. Like I said, heart attacks are higher and, you know, 120,000 people die because of stress connected to work and so forth, right? So the fact is that the way we work isn't working. I mean, if you, if you look at hospitals, doctors, nurses, in the U.S., depression and drug addiction and anxiety and even suicide are much higher among doctors and nurses than the general population. So these are people who are doing noble, healing, heroic work. And yet, because of the way in which we run our organizations, they are suffering, right? And, and double the rate of suicide and so forth. So the fact is that the way we work isn't working and we're creating a lot of stress, which then, you know, stress creates or or 
or enhances about 90-95% of illnesses, right? Stress contributes to or creates 95% of all chronic uh, diseases. So there's a lot of suffering that comes. And my belief is, and what I've shown through that book, is it doesn't have to be that way. You know, it's not a given that work has to be incredibly stressful and cause you, you know, to have heart attacks and then, you know, shorten your life and do all the rest of it. In fact, quite the opposite, that your life can be filled with joy and, and fulfillment and meaning. And you can leave at the end of every day physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and socially stronger than when you came in. Businesses can become a place of healing for those who work there. They can become a source of healing for those we serve, our customers, our communities, and they can become a force for healing in society. How do we come together despite our differences and do great things? And that's what uh, that research is about, about 25 stories of companies that are doing that. And ultimately a recognition that business is fundamentally about healing. Why? Because in a free society, governments don't take care of our needs. Government just creates the infrastructure and the rule of law and the, you know all of those elements to enable businesses to come in and sense and, and meet the needs of fellow human beings. Now, when you do that in a loving, caring, authentic way, right? When I recognize that you have a need for something and I, and I, and I meet that need in a loving way, I'm actually healing you, right? I'm healing my customers by giving them something that's going to make their life better and, and take care of that need that they have, right? So if I think of business in that way, it's a healing activity. But if I simply think of it as a way I'm going to use employees and I'm going to use customers and others to make money for myself and do whatever it takes to get them to buy this stuff and, you know, like I said, I was in Mexico and, you know, the obesity rate is through the roof and, you know, the Coca-Cola consumption and junk food. You know, we have aggressively marketed things, right? We've created a lot of suffering. Why? Because we're trying to maximize profit there. But so if we do it with the mindset of serving others and expressing myself, my purpose, then it becomes a healing organization. If I do it as, as a way of using others to serve myself, it becomes a hurting organization. And that's the model, the, you know, the, the way of thinking that we've had. For a very long time, business is just about the latter. It's about using people to make money for the owners. That creates a lot of unnecessary suffering. See, there's suffering in the world that cannot be avoided. That's part of life. But I'm talking about the suffering that is unnecessary, that is inflicted by us on each other because of the way we do business. And, and the opposite is true. But, but one of the key elements there, bringing it back to leadership, you cannot have a healing organization without a healing leader. And you cannot be a healing leader until you work on your own healing, which means you have to recognize what are my wounds, what are my traumas, what are the things I've never addressed, which are actually running my psyche, right? As Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will drive your life and you will call it fate. There's so many things operating at the unconscious level in all of us. And all of us have experienced trauma in our life as chi as children and as adults. Many things have happened. There's individual trauma, there's family trauma, there's ancestral trauma, there's collective trauma in the world today. And we don't address that. And we don't do anything to heal from it. And if we don't, we end up being very reactive as leaders and, and as human beings. And we inflict a lot of suffering on each other as a result of that. So a big element of this is for each leader, each of us to work on our own healing and understand what needs to be healed in our psyches so that we can be a healing influence on others. So important, Raj. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I'm also curious as to how your you know, Indian roots and also living uh, for many years in the U.S. has influenced you through your life work journey. Yeah, so I've had the unusual experience of starting out in India until the age of seven and then living in the West from seven to twelve in Barbados, uh, California, and Canada, and then going back to India when I was 12, and then coming back to the U.S. when I was 23. And so I had this simultaneous outsider and insider lens, right? When I came first outside of India, you know, I was looking with Indian eyes. Went back to India, I was looking with California eyes on what was happening in my culture in India. So now I've, I think I've had the opportunity through reflection and, uh, and learning to try to integrate now what I know from these very, very different uh, environments, right? And if you think about consciousness and capitalism together, in many ways, India is, is one of the fountains of consciousness, you know, for humanity collectively. There's a lot of ancient wisdom there that has been deeply thought about and articulated and still relevant today. I mean, the other traditions have that too, 
But I think India especially brings more of that consciousness side of things. And of course, the West and the US, where I've spent most of my life now, uh, is the fountain of, of is the home of, of capitalism. But I think those two things can inform each other in a, in a very, very powerful way. And it can really elevate quite dramatically what we do with that higher consciousness, right? When we go away from the consciousness of the individual, just pursuing their self-interest at all costs, and then hopefully that will work out for society because of the invisible hand. Not necessarily. So we have to get away from that dogma. And I think that's what we're realizing with higher consciousness. We see the interconnectedness and the interdependence of things. And therefore, our decisions have to reflect that. And we have to look at, you know, not only the individual, what's good for the individual may not be good for the group. What's good for the group may not be good for the community. What's good for the community may not be good for the country. What's good for the country may not be good for the planet. And if we're optimizing at any of those lower levels, we are ultimately causing harm to our collective home. So we have to make decisions simultaneously looking at all of those, right? That yes, I pursue my individual passion and self-interest, but I also do it in a way that enhances, you know, my groups, right? My, uh, you know, various uh, entities or teams that I'm part of and the organization that I'm part of and the community and the society and ultimately the planet. So how do we make decisions that simultaneously look at all those levels, right? In, in evolutionary biology, it's called multi-level selection, we don't just select at that lowest level. We're not going to create a healthy society by every person on this planet just pursuing their own personal agenda to the exclusion of, of uh, all the shared interests that we have. I was thinking about young people out there today. What advice would you give to them in terms of when they're thinking about choosing their life work? Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting with the current generations that they are more purposeful at a young age than we ever were. I think, you know, in my generation, you know, typically it was a midlife crisis that led people to ask the question around purpose, right? And typically around midlife, around 40 people feel empty and unfulfilled with the traditional way that they've been living. And then they start looking for some deeper meaning. I think what we have in the current gener last two or three generations, starting with the millennials, is a much more keen sense of purpose, at a young age, even as teenagers or as, you know, as 20 somethings. And why? Because they grew up in a world, you know, with the internet and with the sense of impending, you know, doom and crises around climate change and many other things, species extinction and many other things. So there's a much deeper consciousness around the sense of urgency of changing the world or having a positive impact in the world and then having a sense of purpose as well. So I think that is, that's what gives me hope uh, in the next generation. And what I would say to young people, first of all, to stay true to yourself, to understand who you are, right? Know yourself, love yourself, be yourself, figure that out, and then align that with your work so that ultimately you will not discover your dream work right away, perhaps. But as long as you stay connected to who you are, you're going to gradually move towards your true calling in this life. You know, that really comes from my own experience as I, as I reflected on it. It was about following my heartbreak and then following my bliss. Ultimately, if I stayed connected to what really matters to me, what gives me greatest pain, and then what gave me greatest joy, between those two things, I figured out my purpose. And I think that's that opportunity exists for everybody, as long as we keep sort of that North Star and aligned with who we are, and then find work that ultimately clicks with that, you know, I think that that really would then, that makes you much more powerful in terms of the impact you can have, and the unique impact that each of us is here to, uh, to make in the world. So Raj, from a more of a helicopter perspective, then what would you say, what does the world need most right, right now? I think the greatest need is for leadership, for awakened, cooperative, caring leadership. There's a real, I mean, I look in the US political environment, for example, you know, the absence of leadership is so stark right now, you know, very, very few people who are actually exhibiting true leadership, staying connected to values, right? And, uh, and and a higher purpose. So I think it's really is about leadership. That is what we need. That's why most of my work is focused in that, in that realm right now. And what would you like to have as a main takeaway from, from, the, from this episode in the minds and hearts of the people who are listening right now? Well, I think for each of us to recognize that we have a unique role to play in this symphony, right? In this unfolding future that is happening. And that is that each of us can be an instrument of evolution, right? That 
there are things that need to happen and are, you know, there's a revolutionary drive towards certain things that need to happen in the world. And can we be an instrument of that? You know, very often people are actually fighting what evolution really wants, right? And, and we cannot be fighting the forces of evolution. We need to be aligned with that. So that's greater levels of trust and cooperation and harmony and, and collective action and all of those things that are necessary in the world in order to evolve us. That is really the long term. If you look at the evolution or the trajectory of evolution, that is what we have been moving towards. So we need to be instruments of that which seeks to emerge of the grand unfolding, right? Of the, of the uh, next stage of our existence here as opposed to trying to go against that and try to move things back, backward, which I think we are experiencing. In some ways, the world is moving in a backward direction right now, or trying to. But I think that's a temporary thing. We all have to be aligned with that evolutionary process. And there is a, a big power in, in, in action, of course. So what would you say, the people who are listening now, what can they go and do so that each and every one of us can contribute Well, I think, first of all, working on your own self, your self-awareness, you know, working on your own consciousness, right? I think that's an essential duty we all have, right? Because that then impacts all the people whose lives we touch uh, through that. So becoming more self-aware, working on our consciousness, aligning all the different aspects of our life. Very often we live fragmented lives, right? Or how we are at work, how we are at home, how we are with our friends, etc. How can we bring alignment? And then, of course, you know, we are, uh, human beings are very social creatures, right? And we function best in groups, in small groups especially. So finding your tribe and being connected to uh, fellow travelers, right? So conscious capitalism as a movement, or, you know, we have other parallel movements, B Corps and B Team and inclusive capitalism and uh, shared value and all of these kinds of things. So I think, you know, becoming aligned with the broader communities that are out there that are working in this way, I think is an important aspect of effectiveness, but also fulfillment for, for people. I do think everyone can do this mind shift from me to, to you or from I to we. Uh, so I think that mind shift everyone should think about every day. And we can all have this kind of servant leadership in everything we do. It can be for your fellow colleague. It can be for your neighbor. It could be for others in your community or others in, in your tribe, as Raj was saying. So I do think that in everything you're doing every day, have that servant leadership, and that starts with the mind shift first. I think that's something all of us can do, and then we will have a much better society. So thank you, Raj. Thank you, Rainier. Thanks so much for sharing. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm.